thank you for uh, your grace in our lives. We thank you for the, the truth of the gospel, that it is you that saves from beginning to end. Father, we thank you for this morning and our, our ability to come together as the body of Christ, to hear the word of Christ, to, be, to have our eyes directed to Christ. And pray that as we uh, tackle the topic of justification, that we would see more and more the glory of the gospel, that it is you who saves us, that it is you who uh, declares us righteous in Christ Jesus. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we've been uh, continuing to work through the confession. Um, and just, just uh, I thought it might be a good uh, beginning just to ask the question, why? Why look at topics like justification? Why look at uh, topics like effectual calling and uh, predestination and election? Why look at the Trinity? Why, why look at all this this stuff. And I, th I think the most, there's several answers you could give, but one of them certainly is we, we want to look at these things because we care about the gospel. We care about the gospel. And the core message of the gospel is that God is the one who saves sinners from beginning to end, right? And we can all understand that to a, a degree, but the more we dive deep into these things, the more we're actually able to understand the gospel. That the great, um, the great debates in, in church history, the, the most uh, challenging times where Christians had to work through things, at the core of each one of those topics was the gospel. Why is it important that Jesus Christ is God? Because it is God who saves the gospel. Why is it important that the Holy Spirit is God? Because it is God who saves from beginning to end. Why is it important that we understand that the difference between myself and the unbeliever is the work of the Holy Spirit in me, giving me new life before I put my faith in Christ? Why is that important? Because the gospel is that God saves from beginning to end. And so that's why one of the reasons why we want to look at these things. We, we, it is helpful to have a simple definition of the gospel, to be able to share it uh, with those around us. But as Christians, we, we want to understand more and more the glory of the gospel. That as we do so, we have a, a, a greater understanding of the grace and the, the glory of God. Um, and, and so it's, it's worth pursuing and last Sunday night, we, we looked at the fear of the Lord of Proverbs. And if we think about it, one of the, one of the factors, um, one of the, the, the greatest things that Proverbs talks about in terms of how we grow in wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It's the fear of the Lord that leads to wisdom. Well, what is the fear of the Lord? It's the knowledge of God, understanding the weightiness of God. Well, where do we see the weightiness of God and how do we grow in the knowledge of God? It's in the gospel. And so we, we want to dive deep into these things. We want to understand what Scripture says about these things because uh, not only do we want to understand who God is, but we want to grow in wisdom. We want to grow in wisdom. And so it's, it's worth looking at these things. And so today we're uh, getting to the topic of justification. 
extremely important in, in the gospel message. Um, it's been said that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. In other words, if you get justification wrong, you are not a church. You are not a true church if you get this doctrine wrong. And so it's an essential doctrine. It's a, a doctrine that w- uh, had particular focus during the Reformation. Uh, and we don't want to lose our focus. We, we want to understand what uh, justification means as it relates to the gospel. Well, what, what does justification mean? If we were to give a simple uh, definition, something that you could get a handle on, The Catechism for Girls and Boys, I think, gives a helpful definition. Justification is God forgiving all my sins. And declaring me to be righteous. Justification is God forgiving all my sins and declaring me to be righteous. Key word there we're going to see is declaring. Justification is a, a legal term. It's a, a forensic term. If uh, Imagine you're in the courtroom and the judge has to give a verdict based upon the evidence. And the judge in this case would either declare guilty or, or righteous based upon the evidence. Okay, justification is, is the, the judge declaring you to be righteous based upon the evidence that's before him. It's not him making you righteous, it's him declaring you righteous, saying that you are righteous. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. If we get this wrong, again, we get the gospel wrong. It is a central uh, truth an important one. The first paragraph of the the second London there says, those whom God effectually calls, so it's reminding us of the previous chapter that we looked at, those whom God effectually calls, he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing Christ's active obedience unto the whole law and passive obedience in his death for their whole and soul righteousness, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. So there's several things they want us to note in here, and we're going to look at the the biblical evidence uh, for them. First of all, we see that all those who are effectually called by God, again, that was the previous chapter, all those who are in that group are justified, are justified. Romans 8.30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. It's talking about the effectual call. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice, uh, there's no one that's lost in that equation, right? All who are in this category are in this category, and so on and so forth. And so all those who are called by God, predestined by him before, uh, uh, before creation, all of those will be justified, will have their sins forgiven, and will be declared uh, to be righteous. Another thing that this paragraph addresses, um, well, it, it explains what justification is not. And then it explains what it is. And there's three views I want us to notice here. First of all, it says uh, that they're not, people are not justified, they're not declared righteous because of anything they have done but by Christ alone. They're not justified through infusing righteousness into them. So this would be the view. Imagine this circle is me. You know, it's a little, little awkward, so it's a fair representation. Okay, this idea of infusing righteousness would be this, this idea that God implants in us some measure of righteousness, that God infuses that in us. Okay, and then what we have to do is cooperate with that, work with that righteousness that God has given us, uh, sort of tend the seed that God has implanted in us, water it, cultivate it, and then uh, that righteousness comes out in increasingly good works, and God justifies us based upon our works. Is this God saving us from beginning to end? Is this the gospel? No, because at some point it's dependent on who? Me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God saves us from beginning to end, completely, wholly, the work of God. So this is the idea that I have to cooperate with something that God does, and he graciously does, but it's ultimately dependent on me to work with that uh, to accomplish a righteousness of my own that then God looks at and is satisfied and declares me right, righteous. Another problem with this is, could we ever accomplish a level of work that will be satisfactory to God and his perfect standard of holiness? No. Okay. So the confession is saying, this is not how we're justified. This is not how we're justified. Another view uh, that it says uh, is incorrect is the idea that um, I uh, have faith in God and God looks at that faith and says, that's some pretty good faith you have there. And God justifies me based upon my faith. Yeah, so, so, that, so there's some problems, right? Do, do any of us have a very strong faith, like a perfect faith that God's going to look at and say, that's some wonderful faith. You're, I'm going to declare you righteous because of that faith. No. And, and furthermore, are we justified by just sort of a, a faith that doesn't have a real object? 
that God just looks and says, that's some really good faith you have, and so I'm going to declare you righteous. Is, 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 does faith have an object? What? In Christ, right? And, and that's going to be important. We're going to see here, see here in a moment. So we're not justified by God just looking at our faith and saying, that's some good faith. I'm going to declare you righteous. Okay, because again, even if we did have some really good faith, we also have some really good sin. Right? That that's not sufficient. That's not the standard of per- perfection is, is some measure of faith. And this is also problematic because, and you see this with people that depend on their profession of faith, that, that look to their profession of faith to give them assurance of salvation, because if, if I'm looking to my faith as the assurance that I'm saved, and, and that alone, what happens when I don't have very good faith? When I start doubting, perhaps, God, or uh, doubting certain things? What's that going to do to my assurance of my salvation? It's going to totally crumble because I'm, I'm looking to my faith as the thing that saves me. And so if I have weak faith, then all of a sudden my salvation is in question. And perhaps I have strong faith. Well, now I'm doing really good and I must be saved because look at the strength of my faith. That's self-righteousness. And so this is, this is very problematic this is definitely problematic. This is also problematic. Okay, so what, what, what is, uh, this is what it's not. What, what is the correct view? The correct view is that we're justified by looking outside of ourselves to who? Christ. And the object of our faith is Christ. We look to him. We don't look to our faith. We don't look to our good works. We look outside of ourselves. We look to Christ. And that faith in Christ causes us to be united to Christ, we're going to see. And what does Christ have that we don't, that we need? Righteousness. Perfect righteousness. He is the righteous one. The only righteous one. And so, by faith, looking outside of ourselves, looking to Christ, we're united to Christ, and in Christ Jesus, we now have His righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the strength of our Savior that saves us. And in in, in this, if I find myself uh, having weak faith, is my salvation in jeopardy? No, because I have, even though I may have weak faith, I have a strong Savior. And so I, I, I continue to look outside of myself, and I look to Christ, and I rest in Christ, because I know in Christ uh, I have His righteousness. And so we're justified. God is able to declare us righteous because we are in Christ Jesus and God uh, looks at Christ Jesus as it were and he says, you are justified. 
Is this God saving the sinner completely, wholly dependent on him? Yes. And as we're going to see, uh, even the faith itself is a gift of God that he accomplishes in us. So, the confession says it's, we're not justified by God giving us a seed of righteousness that we then need to cultivate. We're not justified because of the strength of our faith. We're justified, we're declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ and because we're in Christ Jesus through faith. Some, a lot of verses that uh, detail this in one way or another. Romans chapter 4, verses 5 through 8. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. Who does God justify? The ungodly. He doesn't justify the ones that became godly. Right? He declares righteous those who are ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness, and we'll see it's faith in Christ. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So we also see there the the aspect of God forgiving our sin, not counting our sin against us. Ephesians 1, 7, in him. Who's the him? Christ. In Christ. In here. In him. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 through 31. And because of him, because of the work of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who began, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Christ Uh, Being in Christ Jesus, he becomes to us our righteousness, we see there. Romans chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. For if because of one man's trespasses, talking about Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. He's He's uh, comparing and contrasting the two Adams, as it were, the first Adam and the last Adam, Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, all those who are in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." So, so whose righteousness, whose obedience counts us as righteous? Christ. This is a pretty thorough testimony of these things. It's not obscure. Uh, again, Philippians chapter 3, another passage. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may, may gain Christ and be found in him, in him again, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness depends on on faith in Christ. The righteousness comes from Christ. It's his righteousness. 
That's how we're justified, not by righteousness of our own that comes from the law. Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's, it's by grace, it's a gift, and it's through faith. So this is, this is the important doctrine. This is the thing we have to have our, our minds wrapped around. You, you can talk to a Mormon, and they believe that, at least the ones that I've talked to, they believe that their sins are forgiven because of the work of Christ, that it's of grace. But as soon as you start talking about their righteousness, oh boy, where does that come from? From, their, from works of the law. They believe in, yeah, a gracious God that forgives my sin. They believe in that part of justification, though it's a different God and a different Jesus and all that. But they do not believe that they have a righteousness given to them, a, a righteousness that's outside of them. They believe they have to work for that righteousness. And so that's a, when talking with Mormons, that's a very important uh, uh, thing to, to, to work through. And uh, Roman Catholicism, too, that's the idea of, of an infused righteousness. That's where that comes from, that you've got to cooperate and, and, and build your own righteousness. And then God looks at that and justifies you. Okay? Yeah, because we recog- they, many people recognize that what they do can't, will never be sufficient, so you have to go through purgatory. And that, that is not God accomplishing salvation from beginning to end. And so, uh, this is central, this is crucial, we have to get this right, that we're declared righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, we receive that by being in Him through faith. When we, we, when we ask this, the question, how do you know that you're saved, the answer that we should give is not because of a profession of faith, or because of something that I've done. I know that I'm saved because I'm in Christ Jesus through faith, and His work is enough to save me. He's a strong enough Savior. Um, Also, as we noted before, that even the faith in this equation is a gift of God. You can see above uh, in, um, uh, we'll just look at Ephesians there. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. He's talking about the, the whole thing is a gift of God. The salvation and even the faith that accompanies that salvation is a gift of God. Um, and so that, that's central. That's, because again, where did I put my... Again, if, if, the gospel, if the gospel message at its core is the fact that God saves sinners from beginning to end, if this is not a gift of God, if this is because I was smart enough or humble enough or whatever enough to exercise faith in Christ only in myself, is it God that saved, saved me from beginning to end wholly, completely? Or did I have a small little thing to add to it? I had a small little thing to add to it, didn't I? My own, my own ability to exercise faith as opposed to that being a gift of God caused by Him working in us, causing us to be born again by His Spirit. 
And so again, that's the central question. Whenever we're looking at any of these things, is it, does God save uh, completely from, from beginning to end? Uh, moving on here, the second paragraph. Faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification, yet is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love. So first of all, we see that faith is the only instrument, the only way, the only means of justification. And so this uh, is the only way that God has revealed that, that we see that we can be united to Christ and receive His righteousness, uh, to have His righteousness credited to us. It's only this. There's not, there's not other arrows we can come up with. Okay, We can't say, well, we could also be in Christ and be declared righteous through, through um, communion, by just partaking of communion. We can't say that um, we're in Christ Jesus through baptism. It's only through faith in Christ. That's the only means that God has given us um, to be justified, to have His righteousness. Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It is only through faith. It's not through something that we could do. It's that open hand that receives from God uh, our, our righteousness in Christ Jesus. Secondly, we see that we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. This is important. Because you, you, we look at this, this equation, as it were, and we ask, well, where's the place of my good works? That's a valid question. Where's the place of my good works? Are we just saying that someone puts their faith in Christ and God declares them righteous and uh, they remain the sinner that they always were? Well, no. Saving faith, uh, a union with Christ, accomplishes something in us, changes us fundamentally. It produces in us good works. If, if we were to draw a, uh, a tree... We have uh, a tree here. These are the roots. What, what gives this tree life? Well, we could go into photosynthesis and all. <laughs> uh, let's say kindergarten answer here, okay? That the, the tree gets its nutrients uh, from the soil, from the roots, it gets water. This is its source of, of life. We might say, I, I know there's other things going on. Um, that the, the root of our salvation, the, the root of our eternal life is faith in Christ. This is how we're saved. It's not anything we do. It's a receiving of Christ and, and what, uh, what he has accomplished. But that union with Christ necessarily produces fruit. A tree that is uh, healthily rooted in the soil 
receiving nutrients from the soil, if it's, if it's a fruit tree, will produce fruit. In a, in a similar way, the person that is united to Christ through faith will produce fruits of good works. Those good works do not save us. But those good works are a result of us being saved by being in Christ Jesus. It's a necessary uh, result of that uh, union with Christ. And so, some verses, Galatians 5, uh, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Your obedience to the ceremonial law counts for nothing. But only faith working through love. That faith in Christ ends up actually uh, producing, working out a love, a, a greater love for God and a greater uh, a love for neighbor. It's not a dead faith. It's a faith that produces something. Uh, James chapter 2, a verse that a passage that's often uh, twisted, but it's an important passage. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is saying that the evidence of his faith, he's going to show his faith, that the faith is demonstrated by his works. He goes on, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Okay, here's, that's, that's the verse, right? Well, Abraham was justified by works. Well, what's the thing being justified here? It's Abraham's faith that's being justified. Abraham's faith that's being shown to be real. It's not that, uh, so, so James uses this word in a different way than, than Paul. The thing that is being justified, it's, it's not that Abraham is being declared righteous by offering up Isaac on the altar. Because if that's, if that's the means to be declared righteous, then you better go grab your son. <laughs> no, right? That's absurd. The thing that is being justified, the thing that's being shown to be valid, to be real, to be true, is his faith. His faith is showing itself out in the fact that he's obeying God, he's trusting God. You see that faith, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's justification in terms of being declared righteous. Abraham uh, had faith in God and that's what declared him righteous. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So again, it's, it's helpful to, it's an, an important to look at the context. What is the question that James is answering? Is James answering the question, how can we be saved? No, he, he's not asking that. Verse, what's verse 14? Do you have it open?
Yep. So the, the question that James is asking is, is, is a faith that does not produce fruit, is that a real saving faith? And, and the question is, no, that saving faith always results in fruit. And so if we don't see fruit, well, this then starts to be in question. Okay. Now, now really important here, because... Because in the Christian life, often we're, we don't see the fruit we would like to see. Some seasons we see less fruit than other seasons. What is the solution to that? What, what if someone is doubting, am I really saved? I don't r- really see fruit. Do we say, well, you better get to work on producing more fruit? No, what do we point them to? Faith in Christ. Okay? And so, that, you know, w- w- if someone comes in to me and, and they're, they're unsure about whether or not they're saved or not and they're, they, s- they don't see the fruit that they want to see or they're dealing with sin that they don't think they should be dealing with, I, we encourage obedience and all that, but the, the way that we're assured of our salvation ultimately, primarily, is by looking outside of ourselves and looking to Christ. And so we encourage people, we say, rest in Christ, look to Christ, your sins are forgiven. Rest in Christ, put your faith in Him, that union with Christ will produce fruit. If we tell people, well, you, you just better work harder on producing fruit, that might not be dealing with the actual problem. We tell them to rest in Christ because those who have put their faith in Christ will inevitably produce fruit of good works. And so we point, point people to Christ all the while recognizing that a saving faith is never alone. Saving faith always uh, produces uh, fruit. Some more, some less, different times in different ways in different seasons, but it does uh, produce fruit which really should give us hope and comfort. Because when I see that I, I don't produce the amount of fruit that I would like to or I still see the sin that I'm dealing with, I, I look to Christ and I have hope that my union with Him will produce fruit. That it is God who is at work in me both to will and to do for His good pleasure. So my hope is in Him. Moving on. Here, paragraph 3. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those who are justified, and did, by the sacrifice of himself and the blood of his cross, undergoing in their stead the penalty due to them, make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only a free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. That's a wonderful, there's wonderful truths there. Let's, let's break it down a little bit. First, we see in this paragraph the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. Those are big words. Penal, penalty, substitution, uh, 
being in our place, uh, atonement, uh, a, a payment for sin. And so what that doctrine states is that Christ took the penalty that we deserve. He stood as a substitute in our place and paid for that penalty. Uh, actually bore the penalty that we deserve. He stood in our place. Isaiah chapter 53. But he, but Christ, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That, that Christ actually bears the punishment that our sin deserves. The, the, the full wrath of God poured out upon him. And this is important. There, there are many today, to, today that hate this doctrine, who deny it, who think that this, uh, in the terms that they would use, makes God a cosmic child abuser that the Father would pour out the wrath that we deserve on the Son. And they hate this doctrine. And they miss some important things because is it just the Father's will that the Son would bear our wrath? No. Jesus willingly did this. Right? It was also the Son's will to bear the wrath that we deserve. And if Christ doesn't actually pay for our sin, if, if Christ doesn't actually pay the penalty our sin deserves, do we have any hope? No, because God is holy. He actually is just. He doesn't wink at sin. He, he doesn't say, well, boys will be boys. He, he must pay for the sin. The sin must be dealt with. And so if we deny penal substitutionary atonement, we deny the gospel that Christ bore our sins in his body. He paid that debt. We also see in this paragraph the idea of imputed righteousness. This is what we talked about earlier, that, that the righteousness that we have is Christ's righteousness, that we're declared righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Uh, to use the courtroom illustration again, it's as if we stand before the judge, and the judge looks at Christ's evidence, okay? Uh, penal substitutionary atonement is Christ taking our evidence and paying the penalty for it. Imputed righteousness is us receiving Christ's evidence and the judge examining that evidence and declaring us righteous, okay? And so we see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21, for our sake, he made him, the father made the son, to be sin, who knew no sin. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Christ takes our evidence so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a swap of evidence. Christ takes our evidence and we get his evidence. Yeah, Luke. Well, I was putting me in here. I was saying the believer is in Christ and his work. Okay, we, we can do that. 
<laughs> How about, can we do that too? <laughs> Thank, thanks, Lou. Yeah. 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 Pastor Brendan used the illustration before about a carrot on a on a stick, right? That, for instance, under Roman Catholicism, you're always chasing after the thing, and that's supposed to drive your obedience. That that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity it says that God has given you the carrot, as it were. God has given you everything. God has loved you, has been so gracious to you, not based upon anything that you've done, and now out of that, we now desire. To, to walk in obedience. We love him because he first loved us. And that's what motivates our obedience, is the grace of God not to earn something from him, not to gain something from him, but because he's already given us everything in Christ. Yep. And so the end of all this, uh, because of the way that God saves sinners, God is just and the justifier. In, in other words, God remains the just God. He, again, he doesn't uh, wink at sin. He actually deals with it. And he's the justifier. He's the one that declares us righteous while still being just. Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 26. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, a, a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. He actually pays for sin, he deals with sin, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so... Uh, these things are porn. If we were to lose, for instance, penal substitutionary atonement, God would not be just and the justifier. He would be unjust and the justifier. And so we, we need to maintain all of those. The fourth paragraph, God did from all eternity decree, decree to justify all the elect. And Christ did in the fullness of time die for their sins and rise again for their justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified personally, until the Holy Spirit does in due time actually apply Christ to them. What this paragraph is dealing with is there have been those who have said that if, if God uh, elects people from eternity past, if this is his plan and purpose, and if Christ accomplishes that uh, justification, then aren't all the elect justified already, whether or not they believe in Christ or not at this point. And there, this paragraph is saying no. This paragraph is saying no, that um, though God does elect in eternity past and though Christ has accomplished our salvation, 
We are not justified. We are not declared righteous until the moment in time we actually uh, put our faith in Christ. And uh, though this is not really a problem today, it has been a problem in the past. I, th- I think of the, the 1700s and the hyper-Calvinists uh, who had this sort of idea um, and they thought, well, I'm elect, so I can do whatever I want. People didn't preach the gospel and didn't offer the gospel. It was a real problem. And uh, this paragraph is a helpful protection against that, that you must actually put your faith in Christ before you are justified until you enjoy that declaration of, of uh, righteous in Christ Jesus. We see this, Galatians 3.8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, and you shall all the nations be blessed. So these, these are people that God had already predestined to be saved. He elected them. But this is something that would happen. And it doesn't happen until faith. They're justified by faith in time. Do, that, do they experience that? Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, and you... Paul is talking to a group of Christians. He says, who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. This is who you were. You were not justified at this point. You were alienated from God, separated from, from Him, characterized by these things. He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. Now they are uh, uh, able to be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Uh, And so there's a before and after there. Titus chapter 3, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. They were not heirs before, uh, before faith in Christ. They weren't heirs until this washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. And so justification has, uh, happens in time, though God elects outside of time. In the same way, uh, Christ was... Um, predestined to die on the cross before time. It was God, uh, happened according to God's definite plan and purpose that that would happen. And yet, um, it also happens in time. There's a moment in which he is actually crucified. And so, we want to maintain that with justification. Paragraph 5, God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure. And in that condition, they usually do not have the light of His countenance restored to them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. A couple of things, important things, in this paragraph. First of all, we see that those who are justified continue to have their sins forgiven. It's, it's not that you need to keep being re-justified. Your sins are continue, uh, continually forgiven. 
Uh, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We get to continue to enjoy that forgiveness of sins, um, being justified. Secondly, we see that those who are justified can never fall away from their justification. They'll never be lost. John chapter 10, verses 20, uh, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That is wonderful news. That if you have put your faith in Christ, you're justified, and no one can take you out of the hands of God. You're safe. You're secure. Although... Those who are justified uh, will never be under the condemnation and curse of God for their sins. They may find themselves under his fatherly discipline. In other words, just because we're justified, just because our, uh, we will never be condemned or under the curse of God for our sins, that doesn't mean that God doesn't discipline those whom he loves. That, that's actually a sign of his favor, that God actually will discipline his children. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 Verse 6, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And so the Christian, uh, justified, forgiven in Christ, if, if we wander off, if we are getting into uh, a sin that we shouldn't be doing, if um, that sort of thing is happening, we can expect, and actually for me it gives me great comfort, that God will discipline his children. He doesn't let us veer off just as a father uh, loving his children disciplines his children because he knows the, the, the great danger of sin. So we can expect that from God and actually be comforted that God does that. And then lastly in this paragraph, a restoration, I worded this poorly. Um, let me explain it. A restoration of the experience of his favor is not restored until faith and repentance. Um, so we're, if we're under the, the fatherly discipline of God, I worded this poorly because that is actually a sign of his favor, right? God disciplines those whom he loves. It's a sign of his favor, but the confession uses, and, and I don't have a great phrase for it, it says the light of his countenance. Um, that there's a, there's a difference. So when, I, when a parent disciplines their children, they're doing it out of love, and it's actually a sign of their favor. But what the child is experiencing is something different, right? It's not the, the, the light of my countenance if, if I'm disciplining my child, even though it's a sign of my favor and of my love. But once my child uh, con confesses their sin and is sorry for it and repentant, there's a change, right? They're, they're no longer under the rod, of the rod, as it were. They, they now get to en enjoy something different. They enjoy a, um, a, a different thing, the light of my countenance. If you can think of a better term than that, feel free to shout it out. And, and this is the same thing with God that um, while under his discipline, we, we don't enjoy the light of his countenance until uh, faith and repentance. Uh, 
And so when we're under his discipline, we want to be quick to confess our sin, to uh, be sorry for our sin. We see an example of that with David. Psalm 32, verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And then I, I would suggest reading all of chapter 51 of, of the Psalms, uh, you see David crying out for mercy, confessing his sin against God. And he, he's crying out in verse 8, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That there's a, a change that David is anticipating in light of this confession of, of sin that he's crying out that God would restore um, these things to him. And so... Um, God disciplines those whom He loves. And this is a corrective too. There are some who says, say, why should we ask for forgiveness from God if our sins are already forgiven? Well, it's a confession of our sin. We're, we're asking for forgiveness out of a desire to be restored, to be able to experience the light of His countenance again. Though we recognize even His discipline is a sign of His favor and love. And so we confess our sin, uh, and we recognize that He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The last paragraph here, I know this has been fast, fast here and a lot, but I encourage you to look through things here again later on. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was, in all these respects, one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. In other words, this is the only way that people have ever been saved. Old Testament, New Testament, this is the only way that people have been saved. Now, did the Old Testament saints have the same degree of revelation that we have? Did they know that Jesus' name was going to be Jesus? Did they know exactly the circumstances that would uh, um, lead to his crucifixion and all of those things? N no. But they knew quite a bit. And we see that growing as the Old Testament continues on. And they had enough knowledge of the coming seed of the woman to be saved. And so Adam and Eve, um, I've said before, I, I do believe that they were saved because of God clothing them with the animal skins after the, the promise given. If they were saved, they were saved through this. They put their faith in the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And because of that, they were declared and counted as righteous uh, for the righteousness that uh, Christ would accomplish on their behalf. And so this is the only way that people are saved. People were never saved because, only because they offered sacrifices. Uh, the only way that people were saved is by looking at those sacrifices and in faith believing that God would provide the lamb, the unblemished lamb that they needed uh, to be saved. Because it's clear that animals, the blood of animals cannot atone for, for us. We need a human, and Christ is that human. Just some verses there, Galatians chapter 3 we saw earlier. Know then 
that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, Gentiles included. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. He preached the gospel to Abraham. What, when did he do that? Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. That's the gospel that God preached to Abraham because we recognize in Abraham, the seed of Abraham, in Christ, all the nations are blessed. Abraham put his faith in the promise of that one to come. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham believed in the Messiah. And then uh, there's other verses there that you can look at that clearly show that those in the Old Testament were saved in the same way. So this, this is important. Um, again, in all of these things, an effectual calling in last chapter, and we're going to get into sanctification and adoption and all of these other things. The central question is, does God save sinners from beginning to end completely? And we'll see that the confession time and a time and time again, in a variety of ways, says that yes, that is, that is the gospel. God saves sinners from beginning to end completely and to His glory. Well, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of the gospel because we recognize that in, in our fallen state, uh, who, who we once were, that we would never desire You, truly. We recognize that uh, we were once rebels at heart, alienated from You, doing evil deeds in the domain of darkness, following after the prince of the power of air. We thank you that salvation has come from you completely, that you have uh, caused us to be born again by your Spirit, that you have called us to faith in Christ, that you have worked in us faith in Christ, that in Christ we have our sins forgiven, we have his righteousness accredited to us, that we have your Spirit who is working in us to more and more conform us into the image of your Son, that you are working in us uh, to produce good fruit. Father, we pray that you would help us to pursue that, uh, knowing that it is your work in us, both to will and to do for your good pleasure. Help us to be thankful for these truths. Help us to rejoice for these truths. Help us to see that these are important, that this is the gospel at stake, that if we get justification wrong, we get the gospel wrong. We pray that we would guard these truths that we would pass down these truths, knowing that no one can be saved apart from these truths. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you, everyone.